Let's turn with me in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 5, verses 3 through 4. Ephesians 5, 3 through 4. The letter of Ephesians was written by the Apostle Paul to the Christians living in the wretchedly pagan city of Ephesus, the capital city of Asia Minor. Paul wrote this while he was under house arrest in Rome, and he wrote it to lay a solid doctrinal foundation for these believers so that they could first know what they believe that would then enable them to live out those doctrines for the glory of God. And we're now in the middle of the application section of this letter. So what then is the call now that we are saved? This is the call. To please God with our lives, to glorify God with our lives, and to use our gifts within the church. Why? So that we can all be growing and maturing in the faith and thus glorifying God with our lives in fuller measure. So, as Paul said, put off the old man and put on the new man day by day by day. In other words, now that you're saved and now that you've been made new, now that you have God's Spirit residing in you as your divine helper, which every Christian has, now that you have all these great means at your disposal, the Word of God and prayer and other believers and so on, the call now is to live like a Christian is called to live more and more because This is now who you are. Paul's been very practical for us at what this should look like in the life of a true believer. And last time, he told us that in light of the amazing fact that we're the forgiven, dearly loved children of God, the call now is to be imitators of Christ and to walk in love because of his love that flows to us and through us. That's the call. What a calling. What a calling. Imitate Christ. Paul now goes on to show us what shouldn't be a part of the life of the forgiven dear children of God, of some of the things that we need to be continually putting off for the glory of God. Let's go ahead and look. Verse 3. But fornication and all uncleanness or covetousness, let it not even be named among you as is fitting for saints, neither filthiness nor foolish talking, nor coarse jesting, which are not fitting, but rather the giving of thanks. Now, as we look at this, note how strong Paul is about it. He says that these things shouldn't even be named among us. Verse 3 begins with the word but, and this word is a word of contrast that shows us the things that stand The opposite of that which is a sweet-smelling aroma to God, verse 2. So while imitating Christ and walking in love like Christ did is indeed a sweet-smelling aroma to God, look, what Paul says next is a stench to the nostrils of God, and the word but conveys that fact. So look, Paul says that these things shouldn't even be named among us. Not even named. What does that mean? It means that not only should these things not be practiced by us in Christ, but they shouldn't even be mentioned. Now, of course, this doesn't mean that it's wrong to mention these sins for the purpose of rebuking them or in cautioning those in danger of committing them. No, and that's what we're doing right now. But these things shouldn't be discussed in any way that might lessen their sinful and shameful character. One noted, To jest about a thing or to make it a frequent subject of conversation is to introduce it into the mind and to bring nearer the actual doing of it. And he's right. And here Paul warns that some things, they're just not safe to even talk about. They're not even safe to to joke about. How do you get 
a nation to accept wretched sin. How do you do that? You name it. You, you, you name it. You, you mention it on TV and you mention it in the media and then you mention it again and then you mention it again and then you desensitize people to the sin and then pretty soon that sin is everywhere and soon people aren't even bothered by things that should absolutely disgust them. So-called reality TV is very good at doing this where they exalt wretched behavior and pretty soon it becomes the norm because that's how it works. And that's why Paul says, don't even talk about these things. Look what Paul adds at the end of verse 3. Let it not be named among you as is fitting for the saints. And then Paul adds in verse 4, these things aren't fitting for the saints. So it's fitting to not do these things and not only that, but to not even have these things be named amongst us. The Greek word for fitted means proper, suitable, and distinguishable. It speaks of a trait that stands out and that distinguishes you from others. This tells us that a distinguishing characteristic of a Christian should be a lifestyle of Christ-like love and an absence of these vices that Paul names here. So this is fitting for us, right? This distinguishes us from others and this marks us out and this is what is suitable for Christians who have been made new and who have been set apart from the profane things of this world and who now live unto God and for the glory of God. So it's fitting for us to not have these things that Paul says next be a part of our lives. It's fitting for us to not be fitted with these stinky garments that Paul mentions and that we're soon going to look at. This isn't who we are in Christ. See? We're saints. That's who we are in Christ. We're saints. In other words, we've been separated from the corruption that's in the world, and now we're to live in practical separation from these deeds of darkness more and more and more and more. See, these sins should be dreaded and detested by us in Christ. Christians are saints, the set-apart ones, the justified ones, the, 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 the forgiven ones, and we are called to live like saints. We're be living like that more and more. We're to be living up to who we truly are. And so these sins aren't to be mentioned, much, much less permitted. And again, the only time to mention them is to warn against them. As one said, Such terms taint the imagination, soil the lips, and cultivate sensual lusts. Such conversation is unbecoming saints and incompatible with Christianity, and that's absolutely right. And so we see how absolutely serious this is for us. So put off these things that we're going to look at. Cast them down and stomp on them. Throw these things down and, and burn them. Have nothing whatsoever to do with these things. What things? Paul lists six of them. First is fornication. Put this off. Don't even let fornication be named among you. What is fornication? The Greek word is porneia. Is that shocking to anybody? (laughs) And it originally referred to any excessive behavior or lack of restraint but it eventually became associated with sexual excess and indulgence. The word is used in the Bible to describe any sexual activity outside of marriage, and it includes adultery, premarital sex, homosexuality, prostitution, and so on. 
So look, biblically, sex is good and honoring to God within the marriage covenant. Yes, it is. But outside the marriage covenant, it is sinful. But please note that just because you're married, hey, there's still a lot of sexual sin to go around. And there's a long list of sexual sins that are committed every day in Christian homes. Homes where these things shouldn't even be mentioned. Note that in that culture, Gentile pagan worship was involved with sex, temple prostitutes, and all kinds of other shocking, dirty things. In fact, if you remember, Ephesus was renowned for its paganism. As many as 50 different gods and goddesses were worshipped in Ephesus. And it was here in Ephesus that the towering temple of Artemis or Diana was located, which was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. Much of pagan worship was just dirty. Much of pagan worship was just nasty. And so in the Greek culture of that day, prostitution and fornication were considered permissible activities. As one noted, the ancient world regarded sexual immorality so lightly that it was no sin at all. It was the expected thing that a man should have a mistress. In places like Corinth, the great temples were staffed by hundreds of priestesses who were sacred prostitutes and whose earnings went to the upkeep of the temple. Sick, disgusting stuff. So fornication and all kinds of sexual sin was the norm in that society. And guess what? It's the norm today as well, but not for us in Christ. It's not for you. This is not for you. No. What happens around us, see, it doesn't matter. What God says matters. And even if the world around us thinks we're crazy, so be it. Let them think we're crazy. We aren't out to please the world. We're out to glorify God. And God is very, very clear on this issue. Not even a hint. Don't even let it be named among you. See, as a Christian, you can't indulge in any kind of fornication or sexual immorality because it's not for you. Instead, we're called to purity, to holiness, to godliness. So, is God pleased with your behavior in this area? Are you toying around? Is it being named even a little bit? Are you living in a fitting way in this area in your life? Again, within marriage, sex is beautiful, fulfilling, and has a protective effect against immorality outside marriage sex is ugly it's destructive and it's like fire look in a fireplace a fire is warm and comforting outside the fireplace a fire is destructive and uncontrollable fornication is like that and christians are to have nothing 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 to do with it second is uncleanness put this off and don't even let uncleanness be named among you See, just in case you're trying to make excuses for your sin, I, I didn't really do anything. You can look, but you can't touch. It's, it's not hurting anyone else. And so on. Paul demolishes the belief by some that God's standard for moral purity is relative because it's not. It's not. Look, he says all uncleanness. And that covers anything else that we might let creep into our lives. What is uncleanness? The word used here describes any substance that's filthy and dirty. Here, this is talking about moral purity and how we in Christ are to have nothing to do with anything whatsoever that is morally dirty. Anything. Anything. And this includes the actions of the body 
as well as the thoughts of the mind. So it's very inclusive here. So no sexual wrongdoing, no premarital sex, no extramarital sex, no sexual sin, no dirtiness of any kind, and no pornography in any way. None of that. None of that. See, God cares about these things, and he wants a pure people who are pursuing him and his glory more and more in their lives, and he doesn't want a stained, dirty, worldly, soiled people. Yes, I know we will never arrive at that high aim until we die and are finally glorified. I can't wait for that day. Anybody else? It's going to be a great day. But this is what we passionately pursue. This is what we fight for because this glorifies God and this has eternal value. And also, this is the best thing for your soul. Some here today are undoubtedly failing in this area. In uncleanness and in fornication. My prayer is that God would convict you so much that you absolutely have to make a change today. This is wrong. This is dirty. It's sinful. It's serious. And God knows. God knows. You say, it's not that bad. Well, would you look at that if your spouse was in the room? If your mom was in the room? If, if Jesus was in the room right there next to you? We often set the bar way too low. I'm not as bad as my non-Christian friend down the road. Well, whoop-dee-doo. Come on now. Or even, I'm not as bad as my Christian friend. Well, so what? What does God think? See, these sins steal away our passion and our resolve, and they keep us from the joyful, God-honoring, Christ-centered life, and they shouldn't be even named among us. Not even named. So take heed. Examine yourself. Let God's Spirit convict you and, and put this off for the glory of God. Look, hey, I'm going to ask a question. Be honest. Anybody deal with this in your life? Because I know the answer. You don't have to raise your hand. The Bible says that we all deal with lust and pride. It's common to all people. We all deal with it and they reveal themselves to us in different ways. We all deal with these sins, so we're all a bit convicted here this morning. Good. That's good. The the prayer is that we would raise the bar and continue to put these things off and pursue the God-honoring life that pleases the one that we love. So the conviction is out. Rise to the challenge today. O child of God, guard well your eyes from anything that stains the heart. Forsake those things that soil the mind. Your Father wants you set apart. Lord, help us here to be more set apart unto our good God. Third is covetousness. Put this off. Don't even let covetousness be named among you. Covetousness or greed literally means to have more. The word refers to a strong desire to acquire more and more possessions, especially that which is forbidden. The word is always used in a bad sense, and it describes an insatiable craving greed that gives rein to the things that are against the law of God and man. More. I want more. I need more. More, more. More money, more stuff, more of what belongs to others around me. I want more. What sin? This is self-centered instead of God-centered. This is a rude sin that leads to many other kinds of sins, including uncleanness and fornication. And as one said, it's a dreadful scourge. 
In 2 Kings chapter 5, the prophet Elisha was used by God to heal a man named Naaman, who was a commander of the army of the king of Syria. Naaman was a pretty wealthy and important man. If you remember, in order to be healed, Naaman was supposed to dip seven times in the Jordan River, and after he did that, then he would be healed. At first, in his pride, he didn't do it, but then he finally did it, and guess what? He was healed. And out of his gratitude, Naaman wanted to give Elisha a gift, but Elisha refused, and so Naaman departed. But come to find out, Elisha had a servant named Gehazi who was a greedy servant. So Gehazi went after Naaman, he lied to Naaman in order to get something from Naaman, and because of his greed, he got about 150 pounds of silver from Naaman, as well as some clothes, and then he stored his newly acquired material goods at his home. He then lied to Elisha, even though Elisha knew exactly what happened. It's not wise to lie to a prophet of God. And after that, Gehazi came down with leprosy. So, because of a lust for more material things, Gehazi lied, he went against the will of the Lord, and he paid a very high price for it. Sadly, there are many Gehazis in our society, many who will lie, cheat, and steal so they can get more stuff for themselves. There's many coveters around us, many who will compromise their very faith for more stuff, more material gain, personal gain, lustful gain, wanting what doesn't belong to them. Are you like Gehazi? Covetousness is a very serious sin. It's listed in the Ten Commandments alongside such sins as idolatry, adultery, and murder. It angers God. It leads down a road of sinful behavior, and it should have no place in the body of Christ. It it should have no place in our lives. It shouldn't even be mentioned. The Bible says that an, an ungodly man is one who thirsts for more things for himself. The Bible says that lusting for more things, whatever they may be, is something that those who don't know Christ focus on. But not us. You know, not us in Christ. What's the cure to this? The cure to covetousness is contentment. Hebrews 13.5 says, Let your conduct be without covetousness. Be content with such things as you have. So there you see it. We're to put off covetousness and we're to put on contentment. What is contentment? Contentment describes a believer who is satisfied with Christ alone and with what Christ has given to him, whatever that may be. See, as Christ indwelling him and he's satisfied with that and therefore he is in need of nothing more to complete him. See, contentment is a state of mind in which one's desires are confined to his lot, whatever that may be. I trust the Lord. I'm satisfied with His leading over my life, and I will honor Him in the midst of where He has me and with what He's given to me. So look, true contentment isn't the result of wealth or things or pleasure or or fame. No, no. In fact, all those things often incite discontentment because when you obtain them, you then find that you're still not satisfied. Why? Because only Jesus Christ can truly satisfy True contentment results from conditions on the inside. Adam Clark said, I'm so satisfied with the wise providence and goodness of God that I know whatever he determines is best. And therefore, I'm perfectly contented that he should govern the world in that way which seems best to his godly wisdom. How true is the proverb, a contented mind is a continual feast. Therefore, what do we get by murmuring and complaining? (laughs) He's right. Instead, the call is to trust the Lord and to be content in Him. So what do I do? 
I seek first the kingdom of God and I trust God with the rest of it. I know He loves me. I mean, He saved my soul from eternal wrath. So I trust Him through the good and the bad. And I will be content and I will be satisfied with what it is, whatever it is that He has given to me. Are you content? You content with your spouse? You content with your singleness? With your physical condition? With your current situation? With your material goods and so on? Do you trust God with your life or not? Fierce passions discompose the mind as tempests vex the sea. But calm, content, and peace we find when, Lord, we turn to Thee. Covetousness is a wretched sin that shouldn't even be named among us. Lord, help us in Christ to instead be content in Him. Fourth is filthiness, verse 4. Put this off and don't even let filthiness be named among you. What is filthiness? Filthiness describes impropriety or improper conduct, whether in action, word, thought, or intent. It consists of things that are shameful, disgraceful, and base. It describes conduct which is contrary to a person who has God the Spirit indwelling him or her and who is seeking to honor the Lord whom they love. So this includes filthy behavior and it also includes filthy talk. And we in Christ are called to have nothing to do with filthy things. Now sadly, many Christians haven't fled this wretched sin and they've let filthiness, the filthiness of the the sinful world around them rub off on them. Hey, Worldly, filthy Christianity is quite in these days. It's in these days. It's very popular. Forget about being clean and godly. Forget about battling against sin. Forget about stressing about premarital sex. Forget about honoring and glorifying Christ. No, you're welcome here as you are. And we won't ever call you out on your filthiness. We're all sinners, so come on and join us. We're saved by grace, so go ahead and live in sin so that grace may abound. So you have a bunch of churches filled with a bunch of filthy people who aren't seeking to honor God with their lives, but who live more for the glory of Satan than for God. And while we're indeed saved by grace alone, and while we welcome everyone to come here, look, we will always call you to progress in the faith for the glory of God, to the godly life, the the Christ Christ-like life, the God-exalting life, the sin-hating life, the obedient life, because we love Him. See, But filthiness and worldliness, even in the church, is quite in. That's why John writes in 1 John 2.15, Don't love the world or the things of the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. It's a warning, see, because this can creep in, even into your life. And even though we in Christ love the Lord and, and hold Him as our chief affection, the filthy world continues to pull us away and it never lets up. Take heed. The filthy world system stands as an enemy of the soul. You take heed to yourself. Remember Lot? Lot? In Genesis 19, we find Lot in the city gate of Sodom. That means that Lot had a prominent place in the city of Sodom. That's not good. The gate of the city, see, was where the elders or chief men of Sodom sat. The gate of the city was the place where the business and commercial activities were centered. The gate of the city was where the judicial councils took place. 
And while this could mean that Lot was simply passing the time of day there at the gate of the city, watching strangers come in and go from the city, it more than likely means that Lot was a prominent leader in the city of Sodom, an an important man, a, a chief among men, a leader of men. One commentator said that Lot was likely the chief magistrate of the city of Sodom. His job was not only to give an official welcome to visitors of the city, but to investigate the nature of any strangers who might come, and also to administer justice concerning any quarrels within the city. So the indication was that Lot played a prominent role in the city of Sodom. You know, that's, again, that is not good. Because Sodom was absolutely filthy. So Lot went from looking toward Sodom in Genesis 13.10 to pitching his tent toward Sodom in Genesis 13.12 to living in Sodom in Genesis 14.12. And now Lot is sitting in the gate of Sodom as a leader in this most wicked, dirty place. And it shows us the steady progression of worldly, filthy compromise in Lot's life. One thing led to another, to another, to another, and Lot is looking anything like an upright and godly man, like a true lover of the Lord ought to look. No, he's a filthy man. He's a stained, worldly man. See, Lot was way too close to sin, way too at home with compromise, way too comfortable in Sodom, like too many in the church today. And while this shouldn't even be named, it's exalted. Please note that there's every indication that Lot was a true believer, and that makes this all the more interesting and disturbing. The Bible seems fairly plain that he was a believer, but a believer who sought to have the best of both worlds, which doesn't work. Lot had a hospitality like Abraham had, and it was a biblical hospitality, one of the graces that should characterize a true believer. Lot also had two daughters who were virgin daughters, which must have been very rare in the city of Sodom. Finally, Lot is the object of a very gracious deliverance on the part of God who sought him out with angels in order to deliver him from the destruction of that city. But the clincher of this is found in the New Testament where Lot is called three times a righteous man. 2 Peter chapter 2, verses 7 and 8. There, it says that Lot was oppressed by the filthy conduct of the wicked that he was tormented by seeing their lawless deeds. So it seems clear that Lot was a believer, a man who was declared righteous by grace through faith in the Lord God Almighty. However, Lot is a sad illustration to us of what can happen when we get too close to sin, when we compromise, when we get too close to the world and let its love sneak into our hearts, when we fail to deal with sin, and when we fail to apply God's word to our lives the way we are called to do. Filthy worldliness. That's a lot. How incredibly sad is that? Take heed because this can happen to you. This can. Makes you wonder what happened to him. Why the draw to filthy Sodom? Back in Genesis 13, it says that there was strife between Lot's men and Abraham's men. Abraham says, Lot, choose where you want to go. Go anywhere. I'll go the other way. You choose, Lot. So what does Lot do? He surveys all the options before him, and what does he see? It says that he saw a well-watered area like the Garden of the Lord. He also saw that the land looked a lot like Egypt, which was a very positive thing in his eyes. Just as Eden was watered by the four neighboring rivers, and as Egypt was watered by the annual overflowing of the Nile, so were the plains of the Jordan River watered and fertilized by the overflowing of the Jordan. And Lot liked what he saw. He saw the land that looked like it held the best potential for profit and for enjoyment, and so he chose that land. 
Now, from a worldly perspective, that was the right choice. But it also meant that he dwelt in the cities of the plain, and it meant that he was going to live in Sodom. But to Lot, it was worth it. The earthly pleasure and the earthly gain was worth the stain of it. So he chose to live in Sodom. See, he didn't take into account the closeness to filthiness, to to sin, to the world. And he didn't take into account that the men of Sodom were exceedingly wicked and sinful against the Lord. And guess what? It cost him dearly. Take heed to yourself. We've said this before, that it's much easier for the world to rub off on us than for us to rub off on the world. That the natural tendency is to go down, not up. And Lot should have known this. But something drew him to Sodom. Earthly cares, money, success, the lure of the world. How many Christians have I seen fall into this very trap? I fear that too many Christians these days are way too much like Lot. We're too filthy, we're too stained, we're too worldly. They seek first the kingdom of earth and not the kingdom of God. They live like this earth is their real home and not heaven. They give and sacrifice to anything but God. They embrace the world and its ways and they don't live separate from it. They toy with sin. They compromise and they make excuses for their lack of holiness. They choose earthly treasure over eternal treasure. They forget that the company you keep rubs off on you. And they forget that it's about God and His glory and eternal things and not about the fading things of this life. What about you? Are you filthy, worldly, dirty, stained in word or in deed? Are your friends good for you? Are they? Are are, are your friends good for your faith? Uh, Is there sinful stain rubbing off on you? Does your language reflect the language of heaven or the filthy world around you? Do your actions reflect the actions of heaven or the filthy world around you? Guess what? These things shouldn't even be named among us. Not even named. What about you? Fifth is foolish talk. Put this off and don't even let foolish talk be named among you. And now, Paul shifted from behavior to both behavior and speech, and now just to speech. No foolish talk. What's foolish talk? The Greek word is morologia, literally moronic talk. Speech that betrays a person as foolish. See, foolish talk isn't just gossip or flattery, but it's speech that's wretched in itself and that's offensive to Christian decency and morality. Foolish talk means that you take something that's shameful and you make it appear acceptable by the humor that you put into it. But guess what? It's not funny. It's ungodly. And you shouldn't be joking about things like that. See, on top of that, Foolish talk means a kind of talk which is trite, senseless, moronic, dumb, and that isn't fitted to edify and to honor the Lord. This tells us that Christians should aim to have our conversation sensible, serious, and sincere, that we remember that the words of the Lord who said that for every idle word that men shall speak, they will give an account for those words on the day of judgment, Matthew twelve thirty six. Remember what Paul said in four twenty nine. He said that we're called to speak words that edify, words that impart grace. And so, as opposed to foolish talk, we're called to speak words that edify and impart grace to people. So, we're to build each other up, right? We're called to speak truthful words, biblical words, kind words, encouraging words, loving words, gentle words, and so on. We're called to speak words that would please and glorify the Lord. We're called to speak words that impart 
grace to the hearers. That means that our words are, and our conversations should express God's grace to people so that people are greatly blessed after they talk to us, as opposed to foolish talk, sinful talk, and dumb words that don't really mean anything at all and that don't really do anybody any good. See, foolish talk isn't to even be named among us. No, Christ-like talk. Six is coarse jesting. Put this off and don't let coarse jesting be even named among you. The Greek word for coarse jesting means to turn easily. Interesting. It describes witticism in a vulgar sense. It's talking about humor that may make the world laugh, but that not only shouldn't make us laugh, but that shouldn't even be on our lips. Jokes with double meaning, innuendo, jokes that are inappropriate and ungodly. Now, does this mean that we can't ever joke with each other or that we can't ever laugh? No, it doesn't mean that. Kent Hughes notes, humor and merriment are recommended by both scripture and life. Proverbs 17.22 says, a joyful heart is good medicine. The preacher of Ecclesiastes says that there's a time to laugh, Ecclesiastes 3.4. And those things are good. However, just take heed, think through these things. Be careful with your words. Be careful about what you talk about because Christians represent Christ and there should be a weight about the things we say and about how we live our lives. Why? Because time is flying by and the times are evil and people all around us are dying and they're going to hell and we should live in light of that. See, how we talk matters greatly to God, right? James talks about this in James chapter 3. And it's in verse 2 that James says that Christian maturity is reflected in the self-control of our speech. So he says that if you can control your speech, then you're becoming a mature Christian. And self-control of our speech bodes well for the self-control of the rest of ourselves. So James tells us that the tongue holds a key place in holy living. And that's really what Paul's saying here in Ephesians 5 as well, that the tongue's control is a prime component in our sanctification and in our growth in Christ. James argues in James 3, 3 through 5, that the tongue is disproportionately influential as a member of our body, and he gives two illustrations of that fact. In verse 3, his first illustration is that of a horse and a bit, or a horse and a, a bridle. And he points out how this relatively small instrument used by a skilled rider can guide a large and powerful animal with some amount of ease. James says that it's the same thing with the tongue. The tongue, though disproportionately small, has a disproportionately large influence on us as people. He says that even as a horse's bit guides its entire body, so also the tongue is something which impacts the whole body as well. And so he uses the first illustration to emphasize the relative importance of the things that we say. The second illustration is in verse 4, is that of a ship. This illustration comes from the day of great sailing vessels, which would have been driven by sails and by wind. And he says that even a large ship in a big storm where the wind is howling and and blowing in all directions, that's guided by a pilot through a very small instrument, the rudder. And so again, he shows us the disproportionate influence of the little tiny tongue through the illustration of a rudder. What's the point? That the tongue is capable of tremendous influence. Don't we all know that? Words can do great harm, right? That's true for the bad. It's also true for the good. And here, James is stressing just how powerful of an instrument the tongue is. And the tongue, again, has a key place in holy living. 
One said, if we're paying attention at all to the desire to be like Christ, if we're paying attention at all to the desire to live like we say we believe, if we are paying attention at all to wanting to grow in holiness, then James is saying one area that you can't leave out is the tongue. And Paul would agree with that. Do you realize how important your tongue is, your words are, in your sanctification, in your growth in Christ? It's important. James goes on to show us the great influence of our speech when he says that the tongue is a fire. See, a great fire starts with a tiny little spark and the tongue is like that. Again, for the good or for the bad. And just as a tongue can be used greatly for encouragement and edification and blessing and the imparting of grace to others, it correspondingly can be used to do great damage and great harm. See, what you say can destroy. One said, talk burns. It can redirect the course of life. It can disrupt a family. It can divide a congregation. Words can cause division and damage that are never repaired. I've known people who have done that. They've done that. They, they couldn't control their tongue in the heat of the moment, which isn't good. And so they let the words fly. And guess what? Now their kids are absolutely crushed by those words. And their spouses are heartbroken because of those evil words that should have never, ever been uttered. I didn't mean it. I was just fighting back. But you can't take that away. You can't take those words back. We are called to control our tongues for the glory of God. While non-Christians curse and swear and are dirty and mean and are gossipers and liars and slanderers and boasters and, and hurt others with their words, but, but not us. Here's the bad news. No man can tame the tongue, James says. But here's the good news. God can tame the tongue. And because we have been made new and have God's Spirit living inside of us as our divine helper and have the Word of God at our disposal and prayer, we have no excuses to not put off the sins of the tongue and to put on speaking words of truth, words that edify and give grace to the hearers and words that glorify our watching God. What about you? Sinful talk shouldn't even be named among us, not even named. And so this great challenge goes out for all of us to pursue Christ and His glory more and more in our lives. So we must put off all these things, but what are we to put on? Very interesting. Look what Paul says at the end of verse 4. Rather, the giving of thanks. Isn't that interesting? That's what we are to put on. That's what we are to be about. So what's he saying here? He's saying this, that thanksgiving is the antidote to all these other things. Yeah, there's more, many more things that we are to put on, um, including thanksgiving. But thanksgiving overarches everything else. Why? Because it goes to perspective. That instead of focusing on a list of things that you need to put off and, and that you need to put on, thanks to God undergirds the whole thing and it focuses you on Him first. So our focus isn't on the gifts, but our focus is on the giver. This takes us back to 432 and to 51, to God's forgiveness of us and to the fact that we are His dear children. In between that is all these things that we need to put off but on one end, we have God's forgiveness and His dear love for us. And then on the other end, here, we have the giving of thanks. And it keeps our perspective on Him, those things. See, 
His forgiveness causes us to give thanks to him. And so does the fact that we are his dear children. Thank you, Lord. Anybody? Thank you, dear Lord. And if that's at the forefront of your mind and all that you do as you live your day-by-day life as a Christian, then fornication and uncleanness, they're just driven away. God saved me. God forgives me. God loves me. God is for me. I'm so thankful to Him. Thank you, Lord. Thank you. How can I revel in fornication and how can I revel in uncleanness when I'm thankful to my amazing God and when I'm focused on Him and on His many blessings to me? See, if you're overflowing with thanksgiving to God, then you're not dominated and driven by discontentment at the things that you've been denied. Gratitude is what you feel when you know and believe that God is for you and not against you. It's what you feel when you know and believe that he gives you only what's good for you and withholds no good thing even when things are hard in your life and even when you're single or married or widowed or whatever. You see, we won't get sidetracked even by trials, tragedies, and pains when we are thankful and when we are focused on God and how he's forgiven us and on how much he loves us. I trust him. I know him. And the tragedies of life don't negate that love. No, never, never. Thank you, Lord. See? Also, look, when your heart is overflowing with gratitude to God, do you use filthy language and make light of things? Do you? No. One said, gratitude is what you feel when you've been given eyes to see that all of life is the work of a sovereign and gracious God. It's not for trifling and it's not for defiling. So we continue, continually strip off the old garment of fornication and uncleanness and covetousness and filthiness and foolish talk and coarse jesting and we throw it down, we cast it away and we don't even talk about those things and in its place we put on this garment of gratitude because look at who he is. Look at who he is and look at what he's done for undeserving sinners like us. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. And when I'm focused on him and when I'm rightfully thankful, all those things that should be put off and not even named, those things become detestable, hated, and worthy of casting off day by day by day and and stomping it into the ground. So if there's even a hint of those things in your life, hey, keep casting them off every single day and never, ever, ever stop. No, keep fighting it. Never get used to the stink of those garments and keep pursuing the God-honoring life, the Christ-imitating life, the, the thankful life, the life that has true eternal value. Lord, help us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray that we would be thankful Christians that as we ponder you and your forgiveness and your mercy and your goodness and your love that we would be filled with gratitude so that all these other things are secondary. <laughs> that, that you are so big and beloved in our hearts and in our minds that all these other loves, sinful things that we love and hold on to, they would, they would just be seen as refuse in light of you. So Lord, may we be captivated by you and may we pursue you and be thankful to you and may you drown out all these other things 
Help us, Lord, to keep pursuing it, to keep fighting, to keep putting off and to keep putting on for your glory because you are worthy, because we love you. May we encourage one another in these truths for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.